Glad to see you this evening, and um, glad that we have a time to worship, an opportunity to worship together. And uh, tonight, as has, of course, been mentioned, being a fifth Sunday, we will take a few moments to answer some questions that have been submitted. And some of these were submitted, I guess, quite a time ago, because it's been a little while since we've been able to do this. We have several, but I think that we'll be able to get through them without, uh, without any difficulty this evening. We're going to begin in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you'd like to open your Bibles there, 2 Samuel chapter 5. And the question comes from 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse number 8. 2 Samuel 5, 8. And the question is, is this a character flaw on the part of David or is this activity sanctioned by God? Let's read the passage first, 2 Samuel 5 verse 8. It says, And David said on that day, Whosoever uh, getteth up to the gutter and smites the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So first of all, just a word or two about what's going on in this chapter. We're still, of course, in the beginning chapters of the book of Second Samuel, and so... Saul has recently died, and David is reigning as king. However, if you go back and read in 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, you'll notice that David has been reigning as king in in Hebron. That's verse number 3. That's where his capital has been located. And so now he uh, he is moving. He is relocating from Hebron, which is found uh, south in the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem which really is more of a centrally located area. But the problem is that the Jebusites are currently the ones who are inhabiting Jerusalem. And so if David is going to take up residence there, then David is going to have to defeat and to remove the Jebusites. And another interesting uh, thing to note is the fact that the Israelites were commanded Uh, in the law of Moses to go into the land of Canaan and to destroy the Jebusites. Exodus chapter 23, verse 23 and 24, but they obviously had not done so. And we know, of course, from our study of the book of Joshua and Judges that the children of Israel did not complete the conquest of of the land of Canaan exactly as they were supposed to have done it. So as David goes into Jerusalem, there are basically two things that are happening. Number one He is relocating the capital to a more central place. But number two, this command to destroy the Jebusites is now at long last finding its fulfillment. But I want you to notice going back up to verse number 6, 2 Samuel 5 verse 6, that the king king and his men, that's David and his men, they go to Jerusalem, they go to the Jebusites, and the Jebusites said to David, except you take away the blind and the lame, you shall not come in here, thinking... David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. And then we get to verse number 8. Basically, what's happening in verse 6 is that the Jebusites are mocking David. And when they make this statement at the end of verse number 6 about the blind and the lame and so on, what they're basically saying is this, listen, David, even, even the blind and the lame could beat you. You don't have a chance to come in here and defeat us. 
But then we learn in verse number 7 and 8 that David knew the secret, and the secret was to go in through the water tunnel, and so he did. And in verse number 8, when David makes the statement about the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul being defeated, he's not talking literally about killing those who are lame and blind. He's actually referring to the Jebusites. He's taking the insult that they threw at him in verse number 6 and turning it around and applying it to them. You said the lame and the blind, uh, you said even the lame and the blind could beat you. Well, I just beat you. So what does that make you? That's kind of the idea of it. So it's not a character flaw. I guess you could say it's sanctioned by God, but it's also not exactly what it seems uh, on the surface. David is not commanding the uh, murder of those who are unable to fight for themselves. He's simply just taking the insult that the Jebusites had uh, thrown toward him and turning around and putting it back on them. So that's what's going on in that passage. All right, now let's turn our attention to the New Testament. We have two questions tonight that are coming from the book of Romans. So invite your attention to the book of Romans. We're going to begin in chapter 5, Romans chapter 5. And the question comes from verse number 14, Romans chapter 5 and verse number 14. The question is this, in what way or ways is Adam a figure of him that was to come? Let's look at the passage. Romans 5.14 says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him who or that was to come. Now, notice a couple of things about this passage. First of all, in chapter 5 of this book, the main idea of this chapter is something to this effect. What we lost in Adam, we have more than regained in Christ. And so throughout this chapter, particularly verse 12 through the end of the chapter, there is this ongoing contrast, comparison and contrast between Adam and Christ and between the effects of Adam and the effect of Christ. Now, when you get to verse 13, notice that there is a parenthetical statement that begins in verse 13 and extends all the way through verse 17. So Paul's point, verse 12 and then you pick up in verse 18, his subpoint is in verse 13 to 17, and that's where the question comes from. So let's just start in verse 13 and break down what's said in verse 13 and 14, and then we'll summarize what he says about Adam being a figure of Christ. Notice in verse 13 he says, For until the law, sin was in the world. What he's saying is that even before the law of Moses was given, sin existed in the world. And our next question will um, elaborate on this more. But of course, the reason is because the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3 that sin is the transgression of the law. And in chapter 4, and chapter, uh, chapter 4 of Romans, rather, Paul will talk about the fact that if there is no law, there is no transgression. So what he's saying is, well, yes, just because the law of Moses hadn't been given, that, that didn't mean that sin wasn't a reality. Sin was a reality even before the law of Moses was given. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. That's the elaboration on the point. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death, the impact or the consequence of sin, reigned from Adam to Moses 
even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. That simply means that those who, uh, those who um, did, even those who did not sin after the same manner that Adam sinned. Adam sinned in the sense that he violated an express command. But to whatever degree, this passage or this statement just simply means even those who had not sinned in the same way that Adam sinned, they suffered the consequences of sin because, well, they sinned. Verse 13 and 14. And then we have our statement, who is the figure of him to come? Now, in what sense is Adam a figure of Christ? Well, let me suggest a few things. Number one, Adam introduced a reign of sin and death, but Jesus brought in a system of righteousness and peace. Adam opened the door to death, but Christ opened the door to life. Adam was disobedient. Jesus was obedient. Adam's actions introduced uh, guilt. Christ's death provided a way of forgiveness from guilt. Adam's sin had a temporal consequence, the death of the body, Christ's gift of grace issues uh, in eternal glory. So really the comparison between Christ and Adam is really more of a contrast. But to wrap it all up in one general statement, Adam is a prefigurement of Christ in the sense that just as Adam was only one man and yet his single action affected the entire world, so Jesus was only one whose single action also affected the entire human race. But their effects were totally different. Adam's effect was sin and death. Christ's effect was righteousness and life. So that's Romans 5 and verse 14. All right, here's our next question. This one also from the book of Romans. Go back a couple of chapters to Romans chapter 2. And this question is about Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. And the, the question says, please discuss Romans 2, especially verses 12 to 16. And how does this apply in the Christian age? So why don't we read these, these uh, passages and then we will um, we'll talk about them a little bit. Paul says, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall also be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, um, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So let's first talk about the, uh, where we are in Romans when we get to this section of scriptures. You remember that in chapter 1, Paul describes the power of the gospel and the sins of the Gentiles. So the gospel is God's power to save, and then he says, now let me start explaining to you why that's important. The reason is because the Gentiles have sinned. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through the end of the chapter. But now in Romans chapter 2, he begins to talk about the sins, not this time of the Gentiles, but of the Jews. And there is a contrast in this chapter between the unrighteous judgment of the Jews 
and the righteous judgment of God. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judges, for wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judge, you do the same things. So the point is that the Jews were standing in judgment, which literally means they were passing sentence against the Gentiles for their sin. But the problem was that the Jews were guilty of sinning in the same way that the Gentiles were, which the Jews were passing sentence on them for doing. So they were hypocritical. And Paul condemns them for their hypocrisy in the first four verses of this chapter. And then in verse 5 and following, he goes on to contrast again their unrighteous judgment with the righteous judgment of God. Now, what you have to remember is that the Jews prided themselves in the fact that the law of Moses had been given to them and not to the Gentiles. They considered themselves to be right with God simply upon the basis of having the law, but not actually doing what it said. That's an important point. They viewed themselves to be right with God by virtue of the fact that they were the descendants of Abraham and that the law had been given to them, but not on the fact of actually obeying or fulfilling the commandments of the law. So they passed condemnation on the Gentiles for the wrongs which they had committed, all the while being guilty themselves uh, of what they condemned the Gentiles for doing. But the point then, when Paul gets to chapter 2, about verse 12, is this that it is not simply the possession of the law that mattered, it is obeying it. That's Romans 2, verse 13. For not the hearers of the law will be just before God, but the doers will be justified. It's not just the possession of the law that matters, it's not just hearing it or having it, it's obeying it. So then in, in Romans 2, verse 13 and following, Paul is reminding the Jews that all people are accountable to God for the law under which they lived and that they should be completely ashamed of themselves because they had the law of Moses, that is the law of Moses had been given to them. And yet in some cases, though the Gentiles had not had the law of Moses given to them, in some cases the Gentiles were morally superior to them. So that's the summary of what's going on. Now, This does not mean just because the Gentiles had not been given the law of Moses, that does not mean that they had no law. Now, how do we know that? Well, first of all, Paul described their sin. Do you remember in Romans chapter 1? And in Romans chapter 4 and verse 15, the scripture says, For where there is no law, there is no transgression. And as we saw a moment ago in Romans 5 and verse 13, it says, Sin is not imputed where there is no law. So sin is a transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 14, or 4, if there is no law, there is no sin. And yet Paul has discussed the sins of the Gentiles. So they had to have had law. They had to have been under some law. Otherwise, it would have been impossible for them to sin, and Paul would have contradicted himself. Well, if we're working by process of elimination, if they had to have been under some law, but the law of Moses hadn't been given to them, then the only law that's left would be the patriarchal law. Now I want to point your attention to something that's said in Romans chapter 1 about the Gentiles. I want you to look at verse 9, excuse me, verse 19, Romans 1, 19. 
Notice that Paul says, he's speaking of the Gentiles, and he says, because that which may be made, uh, excuse me, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Now, the American Standard Version translates it this way, that which is known of God. You see, the point here, uh, going with, uh, based on Romans 1, 19 and 20, and Romans 1 and verse number 21, notice verse number 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. The point here is, it's not that the Gentiles had no knowledge of God. It is not that God had not revealed himself to them. It is simply the fact that they chose to reject the knowledge. I would direct your attention, we won't take the time to read it tonight, but I would direct your attention just for one example of that to Joshua chapter 2, verse 10 to 14. There's an interesting statement there where jo- or the spies rather are talking to Rahab in Joshua 2, verse 10 to 14, and she begins to talk about how those in Jericho had heard all about the things that God had done to the Egyptians and all of the things that God had done to a number of other people that had been conquered uh, between uh, the time that uh, Israel leaves Egypt and arrives at the doorstep of Jericho. Now ask yourself a question, how had they had heard that, and what exactly had they heard? Rahab confirms that they had heard that they knew something about God. They knew who he was. They knew something about him. And Paul affirms the same thing as well. And I would argue that in Romans chapter 1, Paul is affirming what we might call general revelation, that is the revelation of God's existence in nature. But in Romans chapter 2, I would argue that he also implies special revelation, which that, uh, that would be God revealing himself through his word to humanity. Now, something else that should be noticed about Romans chapter 2 is that Paul did not say in verse number 15 that the law, was written in their hearts. If you look closely at the passage, you'll notice that he says that the work of the law is written in their hearts. And this particular point, to my uh, judgment, is undeniable. And the reason is because, among other things, the reason is because um, sorry, I lost my place. The reason is because when he talks about, uh, when he uses the word written, The word written is an adjective, of course, and in the Greek New Testament, the adjective uh, matches the noun that it modifies in case, number, and gender. And what the word written modifies in this sentence is not the noun law, but it's rather work. So there's no question that he's saying it's the work that comes from the law that's written in the hearts of these folks. It is not the law itself. So practically speaking, what that means is this. Though the law of Moses had not been given to the Gentiles, yet still they fulfilled some of its moral work or some of its requirements. So the idea is this. Man is born with the capacity to make moral choices, but he's not born with the content. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, the scripture talks about Abel. and It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. Now, we've talked about that passage before, and it's an important passage because 
When the Bible talks about Abel doing something by faith, it implies that there was a level of knowledge that he had. It's not possible for Abel to offer more excellent sacrifice unto God by faith unless God reveals some level of information to him about it. And Paul will say the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, when he talks about the fact that the only thing that we can know about God is information that God reveals to us. So in this section of scriptures, Romans chapter 2, verses 12 and following, what Paul is actually doing is using the Gentiles as an example to bring shame to the Jews. Because the Jews stand in condemnation of the Gentiles, and yet Paul says, listen, the law of Moses was given to you, and yet the Gentiles, in some cases, were morally superior to you. You should be, you should be ashamed of yourself. When Paul says in verse number 14 that the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things that are contained in the law, he's simply talking about learned habit. It's law that's passed down by tradition, if you will. And when he talks about verse number 15, their conscience uh, bearing witness and their thoughts accusing or excusing themselves, the conscience, of course, has the ability to convict us of right or wrong, but Conscience in and of itself does not originate information. Conscience has to be educated. And so the Gentiles were educated in some way. Their consciences were educated in some way. And if you take the total teaching of Scripture, the conclusion is that the only way that that could have happened is for God to have revealed his moral requirements unto humanity at some way and in some point, and for those moral requirements to have been passed along from, from generation to generation. So not all Gentiles, of course, because we have Romans chapter 1, but some Gentiles were morally superior in some ways to the Jews. Now, practically speaking, how does that apply to us today? How does that apply in the Christian age? Well, perhaps just focus on the main question or the main point of the chapter. And the main point is, you have no business standing in judgment or condemnation of another person when you yourself are guilty of the things that you're standing in judgment of them for doing. All right, that was kind of long, I realize, but um, it's hard to, hard to deal with a passage like that without spending a little time with it. We have a couple of more questions and then we'll be done. This question comes from Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, which says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the question basically is, how could the, how could the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth whenever he was buried on Friday and arose on Sunday? And believe it or not, the answer actually is very simple. Jews and Romans did not have a zero in their mathematical system. And so therefore, they counted the day upon which an event happened, even if it was a small part of the day, they counted it as one. So Friday is one, Saturday is one, Sunday is one. That's how you get three days. Here's the last question. How do you know that you're ready to be baptized? That's a great question. Let me suggest a few things. First of all, a person who's ready to be baptized obviously is a person who uh, is accountable. 
meaning they're old enough. A person is old enough to violate the law of God, to be able to understand the difference between right and wrong, to to understand that, that they have sinned, that they have to be convicted of sin, Acts 2 and verse number 36. So I know that I'm ready to obey the gospel when I come to a point where I recognize that I have sinned and as a result of sin, my soul will be lost. But then I'm ready to be baptized when I understand that Jesus died for my sins and that Jesus established the church, which is the body of the saved. When I understand that sin is a problem and that I've sinned and it will cause me to be lost, but Jesus died to deal with those sins, that Jesus died to purchase the church and the saved are added to the body. And then when I understand the plan of salvation, meaning I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I'm willing to repent of my sins, need to understand what repentance is all about and practically what that will look like. I'm ready to confess my faith and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of my sins so that God may add me to the church. When I have an understanding of all of those things, then I would say biblically, I'm ready to be baptized. All right, that's the end of the questions. That's all the questions that we have this evening. Appreciate you submitting those. And if you've been waiting a while for yours to be answered, I apologize. Blame the virus. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation now, and it may be that someone here has a need to respond, perhaps to become a Christian, or maybe you are a Christian, and there are some things that you're struggling with in your life. Maybe you'd like for us to pray with you and for you, give you some encouragement in some way. We invite you to come forward and let your need be known while we stand and sing together.